we have an emergency. We have a national tragedy. Murph is cold. (laughs) (laughs) I am. Send help. Send a fire. I don't know. Send a parka. I don't know. You couldn't have gone any farther, at least staying in North America. You couldn't have gone any farther from Florida than, uh, well, you could have. You could have gone farther into northern Canada, but you're in Vancouver, British Columbia this week. Yeah, buddy. It's, uh, I love coming up here. This We've made several trips up here, and we're doing a thing with the Vancouver police uh, today and tomorrow. But, man, what you know, we joke around how nice Canadians are. They are. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. And, and the cops here, just like cops in the U.S., so the brotherhood and sisterhood is strong. Yeah, well, guys don't know this. Murph got mugged last night, and even the robber apologized for mugging him. Hey, hey to do this, hey, you know, sorry, <laughs> but I, I need some money, okay? Sorry to take your money, please. <laughs> sorry to take your money. And then, he goes to, then he goes to a restaurant and gets thrown out by the new uh, squad that the Victoria Police have up there. Oh man, I love this. They've got a restaurant squad, and so they they sign on. Hold with on, all- it's not a restaurant squad that goes around and eating everybody's food, right? Oh no, oh no, they're they're there to enforce. So the, all the restaurants are on board with this, and what it does is it allows the police to come in anytime they choose to just see if there's any riffraff, if there's any problems, and if they are, you know, like go, known gang members or motorcycle gang people, whoever, they can escort them out of the building. And they, and they say it's funny because it's been going, I think, for several years now, and they said it's become so popular that when the known criminals are in there and they see the uniforms come walking in, they start shoveling the food in their mouth real quick because they know they're getting ready to get run out. <laughs> I love it. I don't think we'd ever get away with it in the U.S., but I love it. No, really. probably not. But, and you're talking, too, looking out your window, you know, as you're wrapped up in your four wool blankets, you know, and drinking hot coffee. You got <laughs> seaplanes. You got water planes taking off out there. Man, we're at this beautiful hotel, the the Pinnacle Hotel, right on uh, Vancouver Harbor. And there's there's a group of about, I think I counted 10 this morning when I got up there. The seaplanes there go to the smaller communities around here that don't have runways. And so you see them all day long landing, taking off right out of the harbor. Vancouver is a very, very nice place. I've been up there before, too. I've been on uh, Vancouver uh, and Victoria and uh, Victoria Island and um, just, I mean, just beautiful area up there. So, yeah. But hey, well, we we digressed a little bit there, so we thought we might hop into it. So, hey, guys, welcome back again. Hey, this is going to be a unique episode, too, for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you about that in just a second. First of all. Thank you guys for joining us once again. Let's just do a quick bit of housekeeping. Uh, Hit Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. It helps us out a lot. In fact, on Spotify, you can actually leave comments on the episode. So if you got any comments for that episode, let us know about that. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. You're going to want to go to the website for this episode because we're going to share a couple pictures. Uh, And we're going to wait until the second part of it. Wait till you, you, you'll hear, wait till you see the end of the episode. And by the way, too, Murph, I don't know if you saw this. I got to post Jim Lawler's picture. Jim just sent his golden eye picture. He is sitting on 1 billion folks, $1 billion worth of gold buried deep in the Swiss Alps somewhere. Son of a bitch. Sitting up there smoking a cigar like he's, like he's the richest man in the world. (laughs) Love that picture. one billion that's a billion with a b man and he's holding up one of the gold uh, bars and stuff so but that's going to be on the website by the time you guys hear this also follow us on that thing they call social media at game of crimes on twitter game of crimes podcast on facebook and the instagram but look man come join us patreon.com slash game of crimes we just did some really good stuff uh, i believe we, we got you know with our warden of the throne exclusive at that level we did a really good discussion about what we think some of the threats are we've got the upcoming uh, q a we just did a uh, take our own take on 911 a little bit different this time 
<laughs> looked at some cases and analyzed them. So a little bit different stuff. And then we've got Q&A coming up, one of our favorite things. So, you know, we got more content there than we do on the free side. So just come join us, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Hey, the other thing you got to do too is uh, also go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, rules uh, with an iron fist with a velvet glove. Just head on over there, join the gang. Couple questions, right, Murph? And then you can see people are sharing pictures Hey, the other one too, Rick Jacobson just shared a picture. He's over for uh, the Spartan Games over in Greece. And he said he was wanting to know where we were. He said, we must have got lost. I said, yeah, you know, my bad. I uh, just uh, <laughs> took the wrong plane, went to the wrong Athens. I ended up in Athens, Georgia instead of Athens, Greece. My <laughs> took the wrong plane, pal. Sorry about that. Well, if you went to Athens, Georgia, you got to watch, watch the Bulldogs beat Missouri yesterday. Yeah, and, the, and it was it was a sad day for Notre Dame. Oh my God, lost to Clemson. Can't what was going that. on there? Holy cow! Uh, it yeah. started off so good, marched down the field, but then they couldn't convert. Three times they couldn't convert, so they left twelve points on the field. Then Sam Hardman gets a pick six. I mean, they, they did it's self inflicted wound. But um, but the other thing I will say is what happened to Georgia, man? They're they're slipping in the polls. They're ranked number two now behind was- Ohio State. I was shocked to see that also, but they'll come on strong. I mean, they're undefeated now in 27 straight games, I think it is. Yeah, but boy, it's getting closer. You know, it's getting tougher for these wins. So uh, we'll yeah. see. But you know what? Mountaineers beat BYU yesterday. Go ears. Go ears. That's right. God, K-State lost. They should have kicked the field goal to tie at the, you know, in the end of overtime. Instead, they went for the win, which I can appreciate that. But still, they took Texas. Texas was ahead 27-7. to K-State came back. Tied it up. They went to overtime. It was 30-30, and uh, Texas won 33-30. Damn it. Nice. Nice. Uh, Still, good football. Good football. And you can tell it is football season, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, hey, but uh, you know, but this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the stories and college football pretty damn seriously, but not ourselves. But Murph, I have to ask you, before we get into it. I know it's early there because you're you're three hours ahead. We just had daylight savings time, so really the question is, do you know what time it is? <laughs> Actually, I do. I do know what time it is. It's time for small town police slaughter. Yeah, you know Sergeant Preston of the Yukon. You'll maybe run into him up there with his dog King. Dudley uh, do right. Yeah, Dudley do right. You know of the Mounted Patrol. Uh, so hey, this one this one actually pulled from Amanda Patterson posted this uh, on the uh, Game of Crimes fans page, um, and this happened not too long ago uh, in Australia. So in Australia, dim sims is an Australian term for dim sum, you know, dumplings and stuff. So Victoria Police, a would be thief, a car thief, and there's there's a there's a thread to this. A would be car thief elected to lock himself up in a bungled attempt to steal a BMW earlier this week. So what happened was the owner driven to a petrol station, which they call we call a gas station, looking for some dim sims, uh, you know, late at night when the man noticed his vehicle being opened on the security camera. So he sprinted back to the car, startling the alleged offender, not alleged offender. He was the offender. Sorry, I don't I don't buy into that shit. Who right. locked himself inside the car. But there was one problem, Murph. He didn't have the keys. The owner had the keys. <laughs> Jiggled the keys at him. The guy said, if I stay in here, you can't beat my ass. So he waited. He did the smart thing. He waited for the police to arrive. <laughs> police made one of the simpler arrests of their career, and they charged 24-year-old Turidin man, wherever the hell that is, Turidin, with attempted theft of a motor vehicle. So uh, just goes uh, to show you, late-night sacks you know, can lead to a late-night heist. So you've got to be careful out there. Late-night what? Late-night uh you know, snacks. 
snacks. What did I say? I think you said late night sex. No, no, no. That would be. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. It's your story. You tell it. All right. That's my story. I'll tell it. Hey, I got a better one for you, though, too. What you got? Speaking of vehicles, right? So, um, you know, you talk about having easy arrests, you know, in our career. Well, that one was easy. Here's another car-related easy arrest. This one happened in Akron, Ohio. So uh, an auto wrecking yard, they got creative when they realized a man had broken into one of their cars, and they went to extreme measures to make sure this guy couldn't escape this time. So Arlington Auto Wrecking realized a man had broken into one of their vehicles, and he was still inside. So... And this is somebody they'd run into before. They'd warned him. They chased him off one time. So they said, not this time, Jack. Not on my watch. So you know how they kept the gentleman inside the car? They lifted it up on a tow truck. You you were close, my friend. They got a forklift, and they lifted that vehicle 20 feet into the air <laughs> and kept his ass there and tell the police. And this is so funny because they've got the 911 call. Uh, the, they said the antics even had the 911 operator cracking up. So he's still in the car about 20 feet in the air, and the loader, the employee, told 911, wonderful, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. You know, we will get somebody out to you. And they did. So uh, they were sick and tired of people breaking into their shops. So this time they said third time's the charm, man. Hoisted his ass on his own petards way up in the air. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and then uh, I thought we would uh, finish off with, uh, I had, I should have done this. You know, this is, cops can get creative too, Murph. You know, we get creative with charges and stuff. So uh, Michael Rome, or Michael Brown of Rome, Georgia, not, not not Rome, Italy, but Rome, Georgia, was arrested this week. He was arrested for theft, so they were placing him under arrest for an active warrant when he was handcuffed, but then he ran away from the scene. So what do you think they charged him with theft for? <laughs> Police property. Stealing handcuffs. <laughs> <laughs> you do what you got to do. <laughs> oh, man. This, uh, we used to call that piling on charges, but, you know, in this case, I go for that, man. Just you know, Absolutely. Hey, Absolutely. You away with my handcuffs? He earned yeah. that one. You earned that one, pal. You earned that one. Well, speaking of earning that, this next guest earned, he earned his share of razzing, his share of ribbing. We we got a genuine, you know, we've got Boyd's Holbrook's episode. We're, we're doing something special with that. So it's, it's going to be coming out. But we got another star of stage and screen. We do. We got Rambo. Yeah. The real Rambo. They're the original. He was Rambo before there was a Rambo. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, just think about this. Can you imagine what ribbing he took growing up? <laughs> and he went through the, him and I both went through basic training at the same army base, Fort Lost in the Woods, Misery. And the <laughs> movie was coming out right about, he, the second movie had come out. And so Rambo, oh, I got me a Rambo. Oh, you, the drill sergeants, I can tell you, you can tell, you can bet they were talking about that back in the old Quonset out there. <laughs> you know, they were, you know, he took a lot of razzing over this, but uh, Rick Rambo's our guest today and his stories are so compelling i mean listen this is a good old boy from ohio that you're not going to believe where he ended up in the world the different places he went but some of the things that he went through holy cow this it just shows you what um, law enforcement has to put up with sometimes Um, this is a very very compelling story in fact so much so that we brought him on not for just one episode today but he'll be back again next week for a second episode his adventures are just outstanding. And, and the, one of the best ones is when you see the, when, when we talk about the grizzly, you got that. We had to save that for the second part. So well, you're not kidding. I, you know what? And I'll tell you what, Rick, you are a stud, my big brother. It's, 
<laughs> Wait till you see the picture, everybody. <laughs> oh my God. And then just some of this, like I said, we got to that point, it was like 90 minutes in and I, Murph and I were texting each other. It's kind of like, yeah, we got to, this is no way we're going to get this all in. And so rather than giving it short shrift, we said, hey, let's start off. So we're going to end right before he goes to, where we talk about the grizzly bear and the hunt and he goes to St. Croix. So we're going to break this up. Something we haven't done before. So we have, actually, we're going to have, um, it's the same episode number. It'll just be four parts, part one and two this week part three and four the next week. There you and go. It, and, and guess what? That one led us to, we've got another guest coming up. We're going to follow that with another guest where we're doing the exact same thing. And his story is different, um, but it is so compelling and it's something people have asked for. So we thought, hey, we're going to give you a little bit more in-depth, but spread it out. So, but Murph, but it doesn't matter what we say. It only matters what Rambo says. So we can't get to finding out what Rambo says until I ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, grizzly, friendly, you know, <laughs> <laughs> knife carrying, bow hunting, you know, rain jack, you know, rain tarp wearing game of all the game of crimes. For all you outdoorsmen, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Uh, uh, the, the adventures of Rick Rambo are the stuff that legends are made of. You guys out there know that we are we always get big stars. So like Murph, you know, we've we've got our interview with Boyd Holbrook done. We're getting mm-hmm. it set up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We got another movie star with us. Absolutely. Sylvester you, Stallone. We got yeah. Sylvester Stallone on. We have Rambo with us today. Rambo. We got Rambo. <laughs> That's the no real shit. Rambo. We, we really got Rambo. Rambo with us. Yeah, I never really saw a dime from that franchise. I didn't receive any theme music. I got absolutely nothing except for grief and basic training in the Army. That's what I got out of that last name Rambo, hey, pretty much. I, I got to tell you, man, this is uh, – so, ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Rick Rambo. Believe it or not, that's oh, shit, real that's name. Oh, shit. That's real. We verified we had him <laughs> photocopy his ID and passport and sent it to us to prove that's really his name. Absolutely. This was a recommendation referral from our friend Mark Cameron, uh, the writer who you heard uh, – what was his episode? 118, so just a few weeks ago. Um, but we're finding out more and more about Rick Rambo as we're just trying to get warmed up here. So um, this is this is going to be an exciting. This is an, another retired DE agent, everybody. So you know he came from the good guys. No, he actually uh, he came from real police work first. So you know he we'll did. Talk about yes, that he did. There. He did. He was, a, and and we'll let him talk about that. But Rick, welcome to the show. Welcome to Game of Crimes, brother. Very happy to be here. Honored. Yeah. Right. You got a good voice for podcasting, but you look like Dave Ramsey. I'm sitting here looking at you. I'm going, you look like Dave he Ramsey. Does, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad I don't know who Dave Ramsey is because I feel really, really sorry for him. <laughs> Dave, well, the dude's good pretty, guy. pretty damn rich. Dave's the one that does all the financial stuff. Um, On the radio. He, he's got a radio show, podcast, you know, the whole work. So. Yeah. You don't know. Dude, okay, you've been freeze dried or doing hard time, Ray. It gets very, it gets very lonely up here in the 49th state. You know, we're kind of out of the loop on things. You know, I think I saw Star Wars and I think I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. I've seen those two movies. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're we're gonna have to expand your horizon. So, hey, first of all, Rick, obviously, bienvenidos, welcome. So, hey, as we do with all of our people, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. How did you get started in this thing of ours? I mean, uh, you talk about starting in Pittsburgh. So. Were you trying to sneak into the Steelers, you know, practice session one time? You got, per, you know, got caught purloing uh, footballs. What? Tell us your start. How did you get started? Well, I can tell you, I can tell you that it didn't start with the Steelers. I had a very bad experience with Terry Bradshaw as a nine-year-old kid. 
Uh, won't go down that road, but it was very, very traumatic oh, to no, me. No, so no, I'm in an airport. Didn't you, treat me so well. You cannot say that stuff without telling us. So you brought it up. Got to talk you about. You brought it. it up. That's the rule. You brought it up. You got to talk about it. Okay, so I, I was a very impressionable young man, uh, nine years old. It was when the Steelers were at their at their, their peak. Um, the uh, they were winning all their Super Bowls. Uh, as a nine year old kid living in the country, I'm not originally from Pittsburgh. I'm from the country. So we go to the Pittsburgh airport early morning, like really early morning, to see an uncle off going overseas. Uh, there's no one in the airport, hardly at all, barren. I, I look across. The, it should have been like a commercial, like that one commercial with the. Uh, with uh, with Mean Joe Green handing the kid the throwing his, his jersey after the kid gives him a, a, a Pepsi or a Coke or whatever, it wasn't anything like that at all. I saw Terry Bradshaw st- at a stand up like one of the stand up tables you have a coffee at with with a, with a newspaper in his hand. No one else around. So I I bum a uh, I bum a pen a piece of paper for my mom. I go over there as respectful as a nine year old kid can be and say, Mr. Bradshaw, you know, can I please have your autograph? And I have my pen and my paper ready to go. And he looks down at me like, like I was gum on the sidewalk. And uh, he just gives me this exasperated look. And even as a nine-year-old kid, I knew what was happening. And uh, he, he, he jerks the paper out of my hand and the pencil. And while he, he mains, maintains perfect eye contact with me, looks me in the eye, doesn't look at the paper, he scribbles like a, like a Zorro-looking thing on the paper and then throws them down at me. Aww. Takes the newspaper, <sighs> takes the newspaper, brings it up between him and I, shakes it like this. So it's like a barrier blocking this kid out now and whatever. And that was my experience of, uh, of Terry Bradshaw. Oh. So that was the day I became a Dallas Cowboys fan. Damn and, right. Uh, yeah, I ended up, if I would have known there was going to be an eBay, what, 30, 40 years later, I would have kept the autograph. But it went to the trash can as, as, with the pen when I got home. And so, yeah, very traumatizing young man to have that happen to you. Oh, that's, you that sucks. You there, know, there's no call for that. I tell you, when I was a when I was a youth, um, uh, I was friends with the band teacher, uh, junior high, high school, uh, with his sons, and they took us up to Kansas City. I was living in Kansas. We went to watch the Royals play the Yankees. I got Thurman Munson's autograph, Moises Alou. You know, we got everybody was so kind. They were staying at the Mulebach Hotel, I think, before they. And we went to the very last game in the Royal Stadium before they built the new one. And uh, but the, those guys were just they were like just great. And it's like you hate to hear stories where people like this could have made such an impression. And instead, there's nobody around. He treats you like crap. Oh, he left one. Well, you did a move forward a couple of years. When I did become a Pittsburgh police officer, we worked a lot of details. Like as an overtime, as a young cop, you know, back especially back east, you don't make a whole lot of money. I had just gotten married and what have you. So I worked every single detail I could. My wife became a cop widow. And uh, but we'd work the 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 the, uh, the games. We'd work the Penguins, and that was inspiring. I those the guys that was Yammer Yager days. Um, they'd get there and they'd come in two hours before a game, and they'd be in the parking lot playing with the kids, playing street hockey, giving like little kind of like little impromptu lessons for hockey, and then they go play their game after spending an hour out in the parking lot with the kids. So that those of all the different teams that we you know did like the uh, details with Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Pirates. Those the hockey players are the ones you could tell they genuinely love their fans. They were something else. Well, nice. we kind of skip forward. So let's talk. Uh, how did you get started again? So I mean, obviously uh, Terry Bradshaw dissed you. So you decided I'm going to become a cop, find his ass, and write him a ticket. So how did you get started in this policing thing? You know, I'm, I, I can be vindictive, but I'm not going to claim that's the reason I became police is because of him. But no. So uh, I, when I went to college, I was a bit undecided. I had, I was in the army. I was a combat engineer uh, in the Ohio Army National Guard. Did you go through Fort uh, Leonard? Went Wood? to school at Bowling Green. Uh, yeah, Fort Lawson, the woods, Missouri. And uh, to back up to the Rambo last name, 
Oh, they love that last name Rambo. I know when I got off that cattle truck, I think, I think the second movie had just come out a couple months before I went to basic. And so with that name tag, I came off that cattle truck and I don't know if I saw daylight for the first day and a half, two days. You know, the way they do that is they have to pick on somebody. They have to scapegoat for the first couple of days so they can do their drill sergeant thing. But they picked the really big tall guys, which luckily for me, wasn't me. Uh, but uh, yeah, so then they picked the names and that movie had just come out. So rough times uh, at Leonardwood for the first couple of <laughs> I days was Delta, until I figure out who the Jag are. I can imagine. I was Delta 3-3 June and July of 1979. I was I was one twelve. Uh, that was my my unit was uh, was one hundred and twelve combat engineers, and that was uh, eighty six. It would have been the uh, June of eighty six. Yeah, I'll tell you what. That was a different time too. When I went through, we were getting ROTC, so you joined the reserves to go through uh, basic, so you can join the advanced program. All of my drills. My dad was Army, World War Two, and a Vietnam vet. But all of our uh, drill sergeants were uh, had the combat infantry badge. These guys had all been in the shit. They'd seen it, and it was a tough eight weeks in Fort Lost in the Woods. Yeah, you know, we had unbelievably good drill sergeants. Uh, they were they were just something else. And uh, we had that one station unit training for in, for combat engineers. Like I know with a lot of different MOSs, you like you do your basic and then you go to someplace else to get your AIT. And then you go AIT somewhere else. Yeah. Right. We were we were lucky enough to have the same drill sergeants the whole way through. So we didn't get new cadre. Everybody was familiar with each other. And we just had drill sergeants had no agenda other than to train us up and make us, you know, work were capable, make us war fighters. So we were very lucky in that regard. But anyway, yeah, so they, they paid for, Army paid for college. My mom and dad got to keep all the money that they'd saved and scrimped on. My father was a firefighter. Mom was a school teacher. Didn't make a whole lot of money, but they'd saved since I was, you know, uh, you know fledgling. And uh, yeah, so they, they, didn't have, they got to keep all that money they'd saved. Went to Bowling Green, uh, kind of undecided on what I wanted to do. I was thinking about potentially going you know, back into the military and going into some type of special operation or something specialized. And uh, then I met a couple of FBI guys. And uh, these were the old school, uh, old school guys. And, uh, yeah, that kind of started steering me towards that direction, but I'm, I'm not going to, I can't, I can't fudge it over. I got to say that, you know, popular culture goes a long way, especially back when we grew up, when you're a young man and, and kind of, kind of giving you an idea of what you'd like to do. And, you know, like you watch wild, wild west and you'd watch Johnny quest with race Bannon. Uh, and then later on with like Magnum PI and those guys. And I mean, that's what, that's what like a, a lot of my friends and I, a lot of us wanted to be, we wanted to be those good guys. I loved else. Wild, so Wild West. That was always in the background. I loved Oh uh, man, James, I cried. I yeah. cried when they took it. I know. It was syndicated by the time I was watching it. I think I, I, I'm going to admit to crying one time. I'm going to admit <laughs> it one time. I, I cried when they, when they, when it went out of syndication on this little tiny television station out of Pittsburgh that we could barely get on our little roto tenor, you yep. know, the little the back in the day for the, for the youngsters out there. We didn't have cable or anything. We had an antenna on the side of the house. It had to rotate to get the right. But we we barely got that channel in. But still, you could watch it kind of fuzzy. Yeah, they took that off the air. And yeah, uh, I, I think I was re-traumatized. That's my second trauma after Terry Bradshaw, my second worst trauma. Yeah. But nevertheless, the FBI guys. No, I was going to say, I remember the um, music. And they did have the each each commercial break. There'd be a, like a little black and white scene. You know, they would do something to lead to it. You know, so there'd be four parts to the show. Oh, yeah. Good old days. Well, I remember at the beginning in the lead up when they had a little graphics, artsy, and they had like a little cartoon beginning to it. And uh, in the beginning of that series, there was a gal who was going to stab him in the back in that thing and hit soccer in the face before she yep. could stab him. And then they calmed that down later on where he just kissed her. But you could tell there was a change in something going on there between when the gal was going to kill him because it's kind of like a spy thing yeah. and then what have you. But, but yeah, but that played a huge part too. the, the, uh, the whole popular culture thing, wanting to be the good guy and, uh, and whatever. So that, and then, uh, like I said, it, uh, 
at the uh, at uh, Bowling Green. One of my instructors was a former uh, old time FBI guy, and uh, I think he was one of their founding. I think you call it a plank member, one of their founding members of the FBI SWAT team uh, back before it became HRT. Oh wow! But uh, this guy, and he was true blue, uh, very 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 good man. But uh, between him and a fellow, I still remember the guy's name. I can't remember what I did two weeks ago, but I remember a fellow named uh, Special Agent Don Vilfer. And Don came in as a guest of my of our of our adjunct professor, and we all went out to dinner one night, the whole class. And he told us, you know, how things were and what they did and all that. And that kind of set me down the path of thinking I'm going to probably going to want to go into federal law enforcement. At the time, you know, you kind of set your goal towards that, not realizing you're going to have to do your time in the field first. You're going to you have to put some time in the trenches, at least if you want to be really effective. To, uh, you know, it helps. And so, but that's what set me down the road. So. Um when when you were looking at it with all of this federal influence um how come how come then you uh i mean you did you have an epiphany and realize i need to go dea or were you influenced by miami vice because miami vice was out about that time come on be honest yeah be honest all of the above all of the above especially miami <laughs> there vice. you go <laughs> like i said i never got my own theme music from the from the whole rambo franchise and you know jan hammer or whatever his name was who doesn't want that music for your background uh coming from the borderline of appalachia you know, right there at the corner where West Virginia, Ohio, and PA come from. I mean, yeah, I mean, I just knew that's where I needed to be. So, yeah. As I drove around Alaska 25, 30 years later, uh, in the wilds of Alaska, doing my drug, you know, my drug cop thing uh, uh, in a four-wheel drive pickup truck, it wasn't as sexy, but I still play that theme song once in a while, driving out, <laughs> middle, out to Fairbanks, like seven-hour drive in winter to Fairbanks. There'll still be some of the music going on. A little bit of Phil Collins. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Guess I, get all I get all melancholy and think I was in a white, in a white, what do you have, a... Uh, Ferrari Testarossa, or one of the anyway, yeah. But it was a just pick. It's an old brown brown. <laughs> well, between truck. Phil Collins, Sheena Easton, and Glenn Fry, some of the music they had on there that was just. I mean, that you want to talk about a, the time to be alive, like in the eighties. There was shows oh, like, and the music. Oh my god. Yeah, hey, and I got I got to say that the probably one of the crowning influence or one of the probably the, the pinnacle of influences for me was that Magnum PI episode with the Russian guy. I don't know if you remember this one, but it was like it was very iconic. The guy, the backstory was when when Magnum PI and all of his friends, you know, that he was with TJ or whatever, all the other guys he was you know with on Hawaii. Um, when they're in Vietnam, this guy was a uh, Russian, like a KGB KGB guy, and uh, he kid he uh, he had had them and, and tortured them, or whatever. Well, now he's in Hawaii. He kills one of Magnum's friends. And it's the end of the episode, and Magnum has him where he could where he could want him. He could kill him, and the guy goes, "You won't do it, Magnum." You know, you're you're a good man. You're an honorable man. If you had me, if I had a gun, you'd kill me. But I don't. And he starts to walk away. And Magnum PI asks him, uh, "Ivan, have you seen the sunrise this morning?" And Ivan says in his pretty bad Russian accent, "Da" or whatever. And and why? And then you see Magnum pull up his 45, his 1911, and just smoke him. And it freeze frames at the end with his giant muzzle blast coming out of the 1911. And I remember when I saw that, I'm like, "Yeah." That's that's what I want to do. That's the way things should be. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if you've ever seen that episode, but that's one of those. You know, I got to go back and look. It's been so long. But, you know, das vidanya, Ivan. You know, it's good to, good to meet you. Go so so long now. Uh, go to sleep. So, uh, but 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 it, how did you translate? So what, what were you studying at Bowling Green first? And then how did that translate into uh, going back to Pittsburgh and applying for the police? Sure. So I, I started off uh, with political science and sociology uh, for majors and minors. Uh, criminal justice was competitive, so I did that. It, it, they, they had you. Uh, they knew they were going to need another year out of you with that major because it took a year to get in. 
but yeah, so my sophomore year, I competed to get into the, into the uh, criminal justice program, and then that's where it well, all went from there. Um, two internships that also kind of kept me on the path. One was with a small town sheriff's department. Uh, we had to do, I think, 480 hours of internship time. And you did that back in PA? At Bowling Green. Bowling yeah, Green? Bowling okay. Green over in Ohio. Yes. But uh, yeah, so I did the I did the internship with with a Wood County Sheriff off, Sheriff's Office, and they did the typical small county sheriff thing. Got to go out on patrol, do all that. I uh, saw the you know, saw that from that perspective, um, and then uh, I I was lucky enough to to be one of the first interns with the U.S. Marshal Service. Uh, and what had happened was I called the marshals in Toledo. It's about an hour drive, forty five minute drive from Bowling Green, and I asked if they had an internship. Once I knew I had to do one, and they said no, but let's see what we can do. So they called and they did some things or whatever. And so they ended up instituting an internship program. Uh, I will say that it was in its uh, infancy stages when I came on board as far as like what the protocols were. Um, and one of the things, one of the stories that has to be told, I'll try to tell as quickly as I can. No, is, no, no. Take you your know, time. Intern now. Don't skip all yeah, the details. Well, Let's hear them. Okay. Well, I know like with DEA interns, since I've been working with the agency and watching other agencies' interns in the last 15, 20 years, they're kind of like relegated to the office. You know, they, they can get to see briefings and what have you, but they're not allowed to go out and do surveillance, not even surveillances where they're down the road, like, you know, a mile and a half while the warrant, search warrant's happening, what have you. So when I, be, when I started my internship, uh, one of the, the crowning, the crowning ach- achievement during that was it was a slow day. It was almost like what we'd call a federal Friday where you've tried to work as hard as you can so you can get out of there a little bit early on a Friday. It was one of those kind of days. And the only people left in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the marshal's office there at the federal courthouse in Toledo was my, uh, the guy who was kind of like my supervisor, mentor, as you will. He was their chief, uh, I guess you would call that a, a chief uh, fugitive, uh, um, fugitive inspector for the whole region. And this guy was, he was unbelievably good. His name was Rod. Uh, Rod was my, was my mentor. And then there was a newer, a newer marshal named Debbie Santos. And so it was Rod and Debbie and me, and we're alone in that office. Rod gets a telephone call, and this telephone call comes from a really, really good confidential source of his and says, this guy is at this house right now. And it was a suburb of Toledo. I think it was like called Oregon. Uh, But nevertheless, this this, uh, CS, confidential informant, according to Rod, it was never wrong. Well, the guy that he named was one of their top 15 most wanted. Wow. And, you know, with that. Yeah, so you know, FBI has their top ten most wanted, but since Marshal Service is the oldest law enforcement agency in the country, they get fifteen. There you go. So this guy was one of their top fifteen most wanted. So Rod, he grabs two weapons. He grabs a Witsec shotgun, which is a little—I think it was a Remington eight seventy, but it's chopped off all the way down with a like a like a—I mean, a barrel. I think it holds three rounds, but it's meant for being able to do close quarter, carry it somewhat, you know, concealed, what have you. He grabs a Witsec shotgun. And he grabs a, a, a Colt, it was an, uh, an M16A2, like a shorter M16. Debbie has a wheel gun. She has a 357 Magnum that she was issued from the, from the Marshall Academy. So uh, anyway, we jump in one of their seized cars that was about to be put into service. I don't think this thing was really in service yet, but we jumped in it. Uh, it was a really nice Mercedes Benz. Mm-hmm. And so you have, to fit, you have to understand, I mean, I'm still enamored by this whole thing. I can't believe, as a small town kid from where I come from, that I'm with the Marshall Service. Driving in a Benz. We're running out there. Yeah, I'm waiting for your I'm waiting for your Miami Vice music, you know, to, to kick in when we get in the car. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, and this is back in the day. This is the early days of the bag phone. Uh, you know, no cell, no, no little cell phones or smartphones. It was a like this giant, this giant like ba- like backpack that had a cell phone in it. Like carrying a Samsonite on board with you. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, might as well fill a trunk up with combo gear. So he grabs that, and we get in the car, and we go. Well, because we're in this undercover car, there's no, there's no like radio, like uh, a car radio, like a hardened, hard, hard, uh, hard input radio in it. All we have is that bag phone. So we get out there, we get down the street, and Rod, I think, even with his, with the, how good his CS was, confidential force, uh, conf- confidential informant was, I think he's still a bit skeptical. So we sit down the street from the place. And we see a guy come out and start washing a car. And from a distance, it could be the guy. So Rod says, and I, I'm dressed down. I'm dressed kind of like, not like a turd, but I'm not dressed for success. So Rod says, you know, hey, do you feel comfortable taking a walk? I'm like, nope, I'll go see if that's him. And it's a residential neighborhood. So I go walking by, stumbling by, and it was our guy. So I come back around, I get in the car, and I'm like, that's him. So Rod goes to get on the phone to start calling in the posse. The phone's dead. That's called so Murphy's no Law. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's no there's no combo. Right about that time, a uh, a, a, TP, a Toledo Police Department unit, or I think maybe a sheriff's deputy, they go by in a marked unit, and he tries to get their attention. Is like, and, and I he we, he has me jump out of the car and without looking like a cheerleader, you know, with pom poms, try to get this guy's attention. That guy is blinders on. He's 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 going. He's gone. So now we've got nothing. We've got no backup, and this guy's not going to wash that car all all afternoon long. And so while we're formulating a plan on what we're going to do, um, I would call this part of the story uh, two, two, two crows and one two, two crows, one pork chop. We're sitting in this car and uh, trying to formulate. And I mean, it's, it's, hot, it's, it's intense in there trying to figure out how we're going to do this. You got an intern with you. And uh, while we're doing this, something smashes into the back window of this Mercedes Benz. I mean, hard. And so guns are coming up. I'm, I'm whirling around. And. What you see at the top of the back of the back window is a pork chop. And I mean, it's a ratty looking pork chop, but it's a pork chop. And I, as I recall, it's kind of rawish looking. It hits the window and then does that and slides down the window at the same exact time. Here come two crows. I mean, they they are they are beating the balls off each other, fighting over this over this uh, pork chop. So now we've got like a, it looks like a haunted house going on with with a, with, a, with a murderer or what are they called crows around the car. And what have you? We're trying to be low key, and we got crows fighting over a pork chop on the back window. <laughs> so that finally, one of the crows gets the better of the other. They take off, and so that we're back to being, you know, a viral lonesome. And so ultimately, the plan was uh, we're just going to go do it. Rod had the shotgun in the car back there, sitting on the floor with me. Um, he had the M16, and uh, Debbie had her wheel gun. And I think his kind of what he said to me was, "Let your if something bad happens, let your conscience be your guide." <laughs> And he knew that I was a shotgunner. I shoot a lot of trap. I did a lot of, I, I grew up shooting trap with my father with a shotgun and I, and I, and I was a shooter, but he basically, you know, he didn't, he didn't put it in my hands and say, you know, if we get into it, you know, get on it. But he said, let your conscience be your guide. And so we rolled up, he jumped out. He said the things that would make you want to get on the ground. Uh, and that guy acquiesced, went to the ground and it was uneventful. Wow. For being a top 15 most wanted, this guy gave it up so sweet. And as I recall, he also made made a little in his pants as well. So, so Rod must have been pretty, he must have been pretty c- convincing on what he yelled at the guy because the guy actually made a little bit of do uh, in his pantalones. And that's why you have rookies to search the uh, bad guy after stuff like that. Hey, I got you used. <laughs> that's right. You used a term, uh, and I didn't want to interrupt your story, but we always define terms too. So I know Murph and I know what it means, but let everyone know. You said WITSEC, um, a WITSEC shotgun. So tell everybody what WITSEC is. Yeah, so marshals are tasked with a bunch of different things aside from getting fugitives. One of those is witness security. So when you have when you have uh, federal witnesses, uh, people especially who are at risk from like organized crime um, or violent gangs, 
uh, the, the marshal service has a program where they protect those witnesses. They either protect them on site, uh, hide them, or they'll actually, if it's a, if it's a witness that really needs to be hidden, then they'll provide them with new identities and move them to different parts of the countryside. And that little shotgun is meant for when you're escorting them. If you're going to be in places where you don't want to carry a full-size long arm, you don't look like you're getting ready to mobilize for Iwo Jima and whatever, then you, that, that little shotgun's a nice little handy room sweeper if you have to really get, get on it. You know, when you're talking about the pork chop hitting the car, I, I figured somebody was throwing that on the car to, to let everybody know the pigs were in town. Oh, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> and these are things, you know, I think we all know this as, as police officers, you know, as cops, that there are things that happen that, you know, when you first hear a couple of stories, it's kind of like Alaska. When you first get up here, people will tell you their stories and you're like, I believe about 25% of what you just told me. Same thing with being a cop. You know, you first come on, you're hearing these stories and you're like, I believe about 25% of that. And then you have things like that happen. And it's like, I believe everything you yep. just told me. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we have, we have a section on our uh, Patreon subscriber channel. We call you, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> That's what this is. Yeah. No, no, no. So you successfully uh, completed your internship. It sounds like, you know, um, so what, so when you finally graduated, were you, was it in criminal justice? And then is that when you went back and got on uh, Pittsburgh or how did that, how did that part of your journey go? Yeah, so I graduated from Bowling Green. I uh, ended up, since I had to spend so much time there because of that competitive major, I ended up having the political science, criminal justice as my majors, and then sociology and psychology as minors. But yeah, so I leave out of there, but that was in a time where you know, everybody wanted to be a cop, because probably because of what we were just talking about a little bit ago about you know wanting to be that good guy and what have you. But law enforcement was very competitive. Even small towns, you'd go to two, do an interview in a small town, you'd be competing for two, like one, one or two positions, you'd have 400 people show up. Wow. So it was very, very competitive. So yeah, so I waited about five, I had to end up waiting about five years to finally go federal, and it was very lucky I did that. Uh, first job right out of the gates with uh, out of Bowling Green University, uh, was with the Ohio uh, Department of Health and Human Services as an investigator. And we acted as a supplement for the local, sh like smaller sheriff's departments and smaller police departments. And we investigated crimes against children. And at, at times we'd also investigate crimes against the elderly. And that included sexual assault, uh, you know, regular assault, you know, physical violence, things like that, and also serious, serious neglect. And we would be the ones that kind of the forefront with detectives to go interview perpetrators on those kind of crimes. And I will tell you that everybody that I work with were all younger people. We had all, in fact, there, there were three gals that I work with. All of us had come from Bowling Green and uh, it's almost like the class of like class of 1992 and what have you. But uh, everybody that uh, everybody that I work with almost was from Bowling Green, but they're all younger people because that job, I think I saw more evil compacted into one two year period working, doing crimes against children than I ever saw as a police officer, especially even as a big city cop. I didn't see as many, near, nearly as many things in Pittsburgh as I did that two-year stint doing that. But the, the, kid, the, people that, the, the people that I work with, nobody did that job for more than five years. It was very taxing, no matter how resilient you were. And it just, it wore on you, you know, it, just, it burned a hole in your retina. And so I know almost every one of us end up going to other uh, venues after that job. Man. So, um, what's an example of one of the cases you worked when you say something that, you know, people would only believe 25% of what you were saying. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. People don't realize how depraved some people can be, what they do to children, what they do to the elderly. What's an example of it, it, one of the cases. And the reason I ask this, that's kind of a big leap. You're just coming out of college. You've got no, no experience, right? But you're going right into an investigative thing and getting into the worst of the worst. It's almost like, if that didn't scare you off, then nothing was going to scare you off. But if you're going to be scared off doing those, you know, investigating those kind of crimes would have been it. I think, I think you're right, Morgan. I think, 
to, to kind of like, it, it would be akin to if you were a private fresh out of basic training and all of a sudden you don't have to go through a Q course for special forces. Uh, you don't have to go through any of the Q courses. All of a sudden you're in Delta. That's kind of how that, that job was going from the, you know, from, from being a college kid to, to doing that. But the training was really good. And what have and uh, the people that were like you know that were that are that were uh, that you worked with, luckily for me there were no there were no people that didn't pull their weight. We everybody was very very good. I would say that probably the, probably the case that strikes me the most is the one that just is, is stuck with me for a long time. Um, and there there were there were a lot, but there was one that that uh, I have to thank Frank Bayerano. He's a former uh, he's a former Air Force OSI investigator. He he was he was one of the only older people that we worked with. He came in right after I did. Frank had retired from OSI. And came in and kind of like as a retirement job, which is a tough retirement job, and as an investigator with with the with the gals and me. Uh, so Frank saved me from Frank saved me from myself, and I don't think we'd be sitting here talking right now if it wasn't for Frank for what happened during this case. I'm going to tell you about. We it was in the morning. We received a phone call from one of the local uh, grade schools, and the principal there was very very good. But they called us and they said we have a little girl here. Uh, she was a uh, first grader, and the teacher thinks that she saw a burn mark on her arm, potentially a cigarette burn. It didn't look right. And, and so, but, uh, and she saw the hint of another one almost in the same, you know, same place on the other arm. So, and when the teacher talked to the little girl, she could tell there was trauma, there was something going wrong. So they called us over and, uh, yeah, we, we show up and the, the teacher, I can still remember what a wonderful lady she was. Uh, we go back and we, and she, and the teacher does all the talking in the beginning because she doesn't know us from Adam. It's just, and it's just, uh, it's just me and, and the teacher. And, uh, she asked the little girl, you know, have you been bitten by any bugs? A couple other questions. The little girl said no. And every time she'd answer the little girl, this is a cute little, I remember this is a cute little, just a cute little girl. She, she'd look at the ground, like almost like she's ashamed, like she'd done something wrong. And uh, the teacher said, well, you don't mind if I, mind if I look underneath her sleeve. So that, and, the, and the little girl looking at the ground, remember she's looking at the floor, shakes her head like you, you can look, but you can tell she's like, she's ashamed. It's six years old. And uh, so the, uh, yeah, the girl, the the teacher pulls the sleeve up a little bit. This little girl had burn marks on her arm, old and new. You could not put your thumb two inches above that sleeve without hitting a burn mark. So the principal comes on board. The school nurse is there. She has burns on her back, her arms, her shoulders, all different ages. You know, all different things. Some are festering. So we uh, we end up calling the, uh, the the parent, and of course, when the parent hears me talking, when they hear you know Ohio Department of Human Services, this gal was automatically thinking. Hey, I'm going to get some kind of money, or there's something going on because Ohio Department of Human Services also does welfare and they do the WIC program and all that kind of thing. And so I didn't tell her I was there because her daughter's arms were burned. I said we need to talk to you um, and what have you. And uh, by the way, at the hospital, um, but, but uh, if you just meet us down there, and she, I, I think she's very confused about what's happening. But there again, I don't think she knew what 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 she was in for. So she gets to the hospital, and I don't have any partner with me. I'm by myself. And I have her come back into this like a this room. I don't know what the, it was a vacant room. It had this frosted glass windows on it, um, like it'd been like a place where you walk up to a teller. Anyway, she goes into the room, and I sit down, and I said, I told her, you know, the reason we're here is your daughter has some injuries we're concerned about, and she instantly you can tell she knows what she's there for now. And uh, like I said, I'm I have no partner. I've got nothing as far as like uh, somebody to be there with me. And uh, I said, would you like to tell me about that? And she looks me right in the face, and you can tell, just I mean, just a horrible, horrible person looks me in the face and she goes, I can discipline my daughter any effing way I want to. Yeah, no, you can't. And I, you know, when you're, when you're 23, you know, when you're 22, 23 years old and you've just seen that on a little girl. And like you said, Morg, you're new to this. It's not like you're, 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 it's not like you're in your, like you're a, 
you're immune to things because you've seen it so many times. You know that your end goal for investigating this and doing it the right way, uh, you don't see that far ahead, I think, when you're that young of a person, especially when you see a little girl brutalized like that. And you haven't experienced the fact that you have to you have to be you have to be decent with bad guys sometimes to get them to to get them to you know hang themselves. And when she said that, uh, I don't know whether the combination of her putting her hand on my face and that that I can, I can discipline my little girl the way I want. All I know is that my goal was to put her head through one of those frosted glass windows and kind of rake it around a little bit and then go from there. So I flipped the <laughs> I flipped the table like out of the way and and, and stirred at her. And, and here, luckily for me, my partner, Frank, was right outside the door. He, he knew that I'd started the, the interview and he didn't want to like come busting in. But then he heard that. And so he comes through that door for being a he, he's not he's not a he, he wasn't a very he wasn't a super athletic guy. No offense. He was not a super athletic guy. He's a little bit on the retired kind of rotund thing. He came in there like flash uh, grabs me and, and he's he picks me up. He has like that. We can't say that word anymore, but, you know, like blank strength. He has that that str- he picks me up. Takes me to the door, opens the door with my body, had a push bar on it. Well, he, he uses my body for the push bar and just, he just walks right through the room, picks me up, carries me out, sets me on the ground. He knew what my aspirations were. And he goes, is your entire career worth this? He goes, is your entire career worth this? And we, so we stand there for a second and then he goes back into the room. And of course, I'm not going to have any report with this gal at all. But in the end, it all worked out. This gal ended up being convicted um, in fact, they end up finding out that she is part of a baby who had uh, been thrown into a, into a bathtub full of scalding water. Uh, her sister had killed a ba- her own baby, um, by putting it in hot scalding water when it was crying too much and then not, ca- not taking it to the hospital. It had died of, um, of pneumonia. Well, that gal that we're dealing with, with the little girl with the burnt arms, she had been there when that happened. And she also didn't report it to police and that her sister's baby had died from that. So that's the caliber of woman that we're talking about, but she ended up going to jail. And her daughter ended up going to permanent. They couldn't even find a, a family member that could take this this beautiful little girl. They end up uh, going to um, to permanent party adoption. And the happy ending was a, a really nice couple end up adopting this girl. And that's and, and so it was a happy ending for that little girl. But uh, that's one of those first ones that really makes an imprint. First, you know, first cases you work that makes an imprint. You're not kidding. You mentioned did she reach up and touch your face? Is that what you said? No, but she put her finger up into it. Like you know, I can, I can, you know, like one of those things where they stick it into your face, and she's like, I can, I can discipline my daughter however you want. And I think it was that combo pack of that that movement, you know, that that kind of aggressive movement, and then just the thinking about that burns on that little girl's arms. It, you know, when, yeah, I was young and still inexperienced, and that's horrible. The, the, you know, the rage got the better. Of, got the better. So, of. as an investigator, um, were you, did you have arrest powers um, or just investigative powers? Uh, how were how were you treated as fully sworn or just as a an investigator? Yeah, so that's a good question. We we had uh, investigative powers. Um, we could uh, we could go to the prosecutor's office. And suggest the charges, and then the charges were actually filed by the local PDs. In almost every single investigation we worked, that usually to that level, we would have a detective with us. Sometimes, if that wasn't possible, we'd do the initial, and then they'd do a follow-up. But yeah, so we'd do the initial investigation, and then the local departments would do the charging. Do you remember how long that piece of shit got for doing that? I think she got five years. Yeah, not enough. Not nearly. Thereabouts, like about about five years. Yeah. Hopefully, people in prison did the same thing to her. Well, that, that lends me to one more happy ending, uh, Steve. Oh, or, wait a uh, second. Murph, time, Murph, out. Uh, time out. Time out. You, you don't say happy ending. <laughs> See, that that means something to him, but it doesn't mean anything to you and I, Rick. You're lonely up in Alaska. We've already established that. So I just want to be clear about what we're yes. talking about. 
we're not talking about a uh, we're not talking about a, a professional massage. <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to talk about yeah I'm about to talk about something that happens in prison between one unconsenting man and a consenting man. That's going to be this happy ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So right as I was leaving that job, right as I was leaving my investigative job there in Ohio to go to Pittsburgh Police, I had received that phone call and I had to skedaddle and get to Pittsburgh and and do a bunch of things. Um, I'm about maybe two or three days out you know, from walking out the door. And I get a phone call from a local sheriff's uh, from down from down below the county there. And uh, he says, hey, Rick, he goes, I, I heard that you're through the grapevine. You're leaving to go to the big city of Pittsburgh. Just wanted to say goodbye. He said, but before you go, I just wanted to let you know you're responsible for a death. And, you know, like if you ever watch those movies where the hallway, like something really dramatic or scary happens and the hallway goes, boom, yeah. and it kind of like <laughs> it like extends and time slows down and like everything kind of goes askew. And the, the whole scenario looks like I mean, whatever, wherever you're standing, everything starts to like get really long and scary looking. In my field of vision, I think that's that's what happened when he said that, because in my mind, you know, a lot of the times we do investigations and not everyone was a blockbuster like that little girl. A lot of the times you'd have parents that were trying to get back at each other. Um, you know, there were custody battles. There's ugly, ugly, ugly things that happened where, you know, there'd be allegations that were not true. There's nothing to it, but it was one person trying to get back at another or what have you. And so, but when that sheriff says you're responsible for a death, I'm thinking we investigated something. We, we found it to be not true. We, it was unfounded and we moved on. And because of that, a child had gotten killed, you know, that we were wrong. And so in my mind, it's like, oh, no, we, we screwed up an investigation, and here we are. And even though, the, even though the lull in conversation with that sheriff was probably like maybe three seconds when he said that, it might as well have been an hour. I'm trying to think, oh, no, no, no. And uh, he, goes, he goes, Rick, 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 he goes, I know what you're thinking. No, and he, and he, he names this guy's name, and uh, I think the guy's name had a real weird name like Dalrymple or something to that effect. But anyway, he said, do you remember this guy that you guys uh, investigated? He was a child molester. This guy had, uh, had uh, raped a... Uh, the 10 month old baby, 10 month old baby. And he, oh he had been in gosh. prison before that for the rape of another like young, like two year old child. And the, the judge uh, in their infinite wisdom had given him shock probation after he spent like five years in prison. And they let him, the way it worked was, I think they let this guy out. If he didn't do anything else, he'd be okay. But they, all of a sudden he's out in general. He's gone. He's after, after that, he's out walking around. Well, he, he found another gal who had kids, married her. And then, she caught him right in the act. So we investigated him. Uh, he ends up getting convicted of the new act, plus getting his, uh, I think he had 20 years left on his sentence from the other one. So they sent him to, I think, I think it was Marion or one of the state, one of the nasty state prisons there in Ohio. But uh, yeah, so the death that the sheriff's department was talking about was this guy. Um, he, he was one of those megalomaniacs that thought he was the smartest man in the room and what have you. And so he went to prison and he demanded he'd be in, in general population. Huh. You know, because they put them in protective, protective custody, which, you know, Tick-tock, whatever. Talk, Skippy, your time's, yeah, your yep. time's about up. Go ahead. Yeah, we'll put you in, Jen Pop. Yep, yep. So he he went as far as happy. I, as far, my understanding was he actually filed an injunction um, against the uh, the state, and it passed. And the judge is like, okay, fine, you know, <laughs> whatever you want, buddy. But, uh, yeah, so he, he, was, he was successful in his bid to go into general population. I don't know if he's lonely. <laughs> I'm going to finger quote lonely. I don't know what. Uh, I don't know what his, uh, mentality was on that, but, uh, yeah. So he goes into, uh, he goes into general population and I got to hand the guy this much. I think he made it a grand total of a week and a half. I think that's how long he survived in general population. And they found him hanging from the yard arms, I think, uh, or whatever, uh, with, uh, they tied a bunch of towels and sheets and stuff together. I think they, they, they beat him pretty good. 
before they did that, and then they hung him. And that was the end of that guy. But that was what that sheriff was. Suicide. It was suicide. He beat himself up to try and cast aspersions on other people. <laughs> then he hung himself. I've seen this before. No, it's, trust me, it's suicide. <laughs> you know, I never, I never, yeah, I think you're right. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, but so that was, that was the, that was the sheriff's, that was the happy ending. Have to get that. that was a real happy ending. That is. But yeah, that was the, uh, that was the way I left out of there to go to Pittsburgh police was that phone call from that sheriff about that guy. And I thought, you know, like that was a worth, that, that right there made the whole two years worthwhile hearing that story. Oh, and I will tell you guys too. I mean, I know we only have a limited amount of time and I won't go down the road with this one. Maybe some other time if we're all sitting around with a beer, but, but, uh, we were actually, I'm not gonna say Shanghai. It was one of the best experiences that we did. That was, I mean, it was like one, cause it, we weren't, it wasn't incumbent, incumbent upon the other investigator, uh, other investigator and I to do anything except ride along. We had the, uh, the juvenile probation officers who we worked with from time to time because of juveniles that were also, you know, molesting other children and what have you. But, uh, they said, Hey, would you guys like a break? And would you like to come along with us? And they call it the checkmate program. Uh, I think in other places, it's that one where they have the inmates scare the kids, like scared, scared straight. straight. Yeah. Yeah. Scared straight. Well, in Ohio, they call it the checkmate program. And, uh, and, we're, and we're like, hell yeah, we'll come along on that. And my partner at the time was this little tiny gal. I mean, I'm, I'm five foot seven with boots on, with hiking boots on. But my partner, Kelly, I think she's about five, maybe four, nine, tiny little thing. And Kelly was like, yeah, I'm going to come along. So we go to a maximum security prison with these guys. And uh, they, had a, they had a van load of about eight kids. And we go down there. And it would take another episode of the show to talk about that one. Uh, all the things that happened that you can, you can, you can put in one day. You, you can kind of fill one day up with. But uh, that was one of those experiences. It was funny. It was tragic. It had everything that a movie would be made, of. made for TV series or docudrama would be made of. It had it had fear, <laughs> crying, violence, sadness. It had everything in one day in that prison, taking those kids down there and letting them see how things really were. But uh, yeah, that was one of their one of the other things from that that gig with uh, Ohio. That was just something else. Do you think that that worked on those kids that, you know, the, the, that got the point across to them by doing that shock or whatever you call it? You know, I mean, I've seen studies where they say that they were only marginally effective, uh, how they quantify that, you know, whatever. But uh, I can tell you that after that day, we came back on the way down. The kids were kind of boisterous. They weren't disrespectful to us, but they were, you know, like, ah, you know, if one of those guys, one of those cons comes up in my face, going to be like, yo, you know, whatever. And uh, yeah, but the whole right. way down, it was that that. It, it was like a it was like a like a funeral dirge, uh, like funereal march on the way back up to. Uh, it was about an hour and a half drive to get down there. I think two hours. It was one of the quietest vans. I mean, you couldn't have you couldn't have uh, you couldn't have used rehypnol on those kids and made them any more sedate. <laughs> as far as on the way back, there was no there was no gaiety, there was no joy. There was a lot of somber looks and, and whatever the whole way back. So it was at least effective that day. I can't speak for later on, but I mean, these kids were definitely humbled, and we saw. We saw, so I, I'll just tell one little one thing from that. When you first get there, what they did is they, you have to go through multiple checkpoints and they search those kids like you'd search real inmates. So you're going through the, you know, the various gates into that prison that stopped, that put them up against the barbed wire or against walls, search them. The guards were totally nasty with them. When you get there, this prison is one of those ones that looks like Shawshank Redemption. I mean, it looks like that old, like Maslin State Mental Hospital looking place. Just it looks gothic. It's scary looking. It smells like 500 years of pee and fear when you walk in. And they take these kids and they I mean, and when they, when they pull them into the yard, there's all these old, like crappy brick walls, all dirty. And the, and the prisoners, these are the regular prisoners are all in these windows yelling down everything you can ever imagine that a prisoner like that would yell at some young, you know, some young meat, I guess is what you want to call it for them. And, uh, I'll just vile stuff. The kids are already scared anyway. Then they take them into a basement that looks like some kind of, it, it looks like a torture chamber from like the French, from the, from the Spanish inquisition. 
I mean, the only thing missing are like manacles to the walls, some old skeletons hanging up, you know, maybe a couple guys with their leather masks and whatever, and, uh, and uh, yeah, stocks. And, but anyway, they take all the kids down there, and they've got them all lined up like, a, like in military ranks. And there's kids from other, other uh, counties that are coming. They're doing not just you know, our county. They're doing multiples, including Cleveland. Well, Cleveland gets there late. So we're all, and they had these kids who are already scared. Some were crying, whatever. The inmates yelled at them a little bit, but the festivities didn't begin in, in earnest. The final group comes in, they're from Cleveland. And these are the, these are the bad kids. I mean, these are like, these are like major league compared to like the Bush league kids from our county. And uh, in particular, there was this one, um, it was a, an African-American kid who must've been six foot, I don't know, six foot 14. This kid was big and he had a giant, giant Afro and whatever. And you could tell of all the kids, he was the one that was probably going to be the problem child. So they come in there and he's just looking around like, you know, like F you to everybody, even with these prisoners. And so they have them all standing attention. And one of the black checkmate, one of the black checkmate uh, prisoners, this guy was about probably my, he wasn't very big, like maybe 5'10, 5'11, definitely wasn't six foot 14. But he was built like, I mean, he was built like a brick. Are we allowed to swear on this Yeah, program? absolutely, man. <laughs> like a brick shithouse. Yeah. Well, you know, my mom might be watching this, so he was he was built like a brick ass house, this guy. Um, I mean, he was something else. His arms were as big as my waist. I, I, just crazy looking. And he just, he looked like he, he was capable. He comes up and he has to look up, at, he has to look up at this kid. I mean, the prisoner has to look up to this kid just to look at him. But he comes up and I can't, I can't hear, I didn't hear what he said to him, but he said something in a low tone. And that kid says, F you and F your mama to this prisoner. And the, and the, 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 uh, uh, what do they call that? The, the warden, the, like the head guy, the main Shingon warden is standing like right there with a couple of his other like underlings. And they're watching this all happen. That inmate instantly, they swarm him. The, the short, the short black inmate that was built like the brick ass house, two other guys, they grab this kid and they just like totally force him into this side room that has a big vault, like an old vault door on it's a big, heavy vault door. They drag him into that room and the door slams shut. And and now the rest of the prisoners are just going out at these kids. And even over the din of the screaming and the yelling, they're making these kids get on the ground and go into like the forward leaning arrest until they can't take it anymore. And they're shaking. I mean, what, like several kids peed their pants. This is how bad these kids are scared. I mean, these prisoners, it's kind of like your first day of basic training in the Marines or in, in the old army where they just came at you from all directions. And these kids had never had none of that. And, uh, but even over the din of all that, you could hear from back in that room with a vault door shut. It sounded like a really bad, like, like really bad sound effects for a Looney Tunes cartoon crash, boom, bang. <laughs> I mean, all these sounds coming from that back room. And I, even the warden, I looked over at the warden and even the warden is like looking at his, like, whatever you know, call him is like lieutenants, like, uh, uh, you look a little like panicky, but, uh, they finally settled out the kids. The kids are all now standing back at attention and they're all sobbing. I don't think there was a dry eye in that house. They were all crying, sobbing. It was not, they were getting humbled and uh, everything gets quiet and they come leading this kid out of that room back there. And like I said, he'd had a like, giant, this is back when Afros weren't even in. He had this giant Afro and uh, had little pink and blue bows tied all through He's it. He's going to be somebody's bitch. Yeah. <laughs> And he comes out of that room. Well, that the the little sh the little shirt inmate, the one that was built like the brick S house. Um, the kid's behind him, and he's got his finger, his in, his index finger, and through his belt loop on this guy's you know khaki pants, his prison pants, and whatever. And that's the way he stayed for the rest of the day as they walked. And you walk through general population. Now the prisoners had to stay on one side of the hallway when they'd walk these kids down through the main halls. But that's how that kid for the entire day 
was walked. He had to walk with his finger through that guy's belt loop because this, because just to show you're you're my you're my you're my biatch now. Yep. And uh, but yeah, and this kid, he had big tears streaming down his eyes. He went in there. He went into that room a tough tough thug, and he came out of there a humble man. And uh, oh yeah, crying uh, and what have you. And the rest of the time that day, the kid never said one word, didn't mouth off, finger in the belt loop. And uh, and the rest of the day, this one there were some even it's just as crazy things that happened. Well, and you and you hope that that lasted and kept that kid out of trouble as he became an adult. Well, because I was going to ask Paul, you, you, you really do. I was going to ask you with your kids, at least the ones that you knew about, did it have any impact on them? I mean, did uh, or did you know what the outcome was for the kids that you took down there? Yeah, we did not because you know since they were part of with the, they were in probation and all that with the with the juveniles and we didn't really have anything to do with them unless we were investigating them. And I was out of there pretty you know pretty shortly after that, but never you know not able to track you know whether that was effective or not. Just don't know. But I I do know just watching them. Hey, well, let me ask you: after going through that, did you think about breaking the law after that? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm good. <laughs> nope. You know, I thought back to all the things I did as a juvie. You know, that might have been you know, eh, and I'm like, yeah, I think I went the right. I think I went the right direction. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.